This is a Reading Rebellion podcast where we celebrate independent thinking, self-education, and the pursuit of an examined life. Uh, I'm Arik. I'm Ayan. And uh, our guest today is one of the great intellectual rebels of our time. Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University, a staunch defender of individual liberty, a radical pacifist, an advocate of open borders, and an author of several books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration, The Case Against Education, and he's here to discuss with us his most recent book, How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. Fantastic to be here, guys. So, Brian, based on your based on your substack, you're in Sicily right now. Mm-hmm. I sure am, right in Palermo. That's awesome. And when I think of Sicily, I think of one of the great acts of demagoguery of all time, which is the Sicilian expedition, where Athens, you know, wasted men and material on a foreign front against their best interests to serve the power hunger of the ambitious and corrupt Alcibiades. Yeah. Um, so just wondering if you've seen any acts of demagoguery since you've been there. Well, funny that you should ask. They're having an election next month. And the city's plastered all over with the usual political signs. And I will say, if you ever just want to understand the sheer ugliness of politics, it's really helpful just to go to any other country during an election and to see how hollow it is, how shallow it is, just to see the same slogans that are eerily similar to in your own country. But when it's another country, just gives you enough psychological distance to realize how phony it is just to see the, the Italy first slogans and um, just the, the way that you just put photographs of people on something. It's like, oh, wow, look at that guy. He should be a leader. Like, why should he be a leader? Just because he got a good photographer that qualifies him somehow. So, yeah, I mean, like, like just going, you know, going around a lot of political propaganda. And since I'm not from around here, it's especially obvious that it's... Just, it is a farce, and people are hungry for power, and what do they really know? Not much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like that idea of kind of having that psychological distance, because it's so easy, even if you try to stay kind of above the, you know, not get wrapped up in the whole American, you know, like, uh, partisan uh, yelling, it, it's still difficult to not get sucked into it when it's what you're living every day. Um uh, what you see around yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a way, like even like that. stronger. I, I was just in Hungary right before their election. You've got a guy that many people consider to be the Putin of Hungary or the wannabe Putin of Hungary, and yet you look at the opposition campaigns, and it's just like for Hungary. <laughs> right? There's nothing about how you know, we have to get this guy out. He's the next Putin. Or even like, do you, like, do you want to take a fifty percent? Do you want like fifty percent chance he's the next Putin? Do you want to flip a coin on that? You know, so, like, like, even when there's a pretty yeah, obvious yeah. thing that you would say against the existing government, the people that are trying to get power, eh, that's not going to work. Let's just go and get a better photographer and say for Hungary and hope something happens. Right, that's really all they've got. They lost, so and- that didn't work. It, it, it was a case where it's like, all right, I'm not Hungarian, yeah. but yeah. I think I could do better than you guys. <laughs> you guys really, yeah. your messaging really stinks. <laughs> uh, that, that feeling of, you know, is this the best we can do? I, I felt that, you know, very keenly in our last election, you know, mm-hmm. where are these the best really? arguments we can muster? Are these the best candidates that we could feel, you know? <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. It feels like there's so many qualified people in this country, and none of them ever seem to, mm -hmm. you know, take political office. Right. Well, there's a whole logic of politics uh, that you can get out of economics, public choice theory, political science. It says that you are going for the lowest common denominator. Someone who seems too smart, in a way, is hard to elect because they don't relate well to the people that are voting for them. Really, you just want a somewhat superior version yeah. of yourself. That's the kind of person you want to vote for. You don't want someone who's much superior. You don't want someone that is there to educate you, certainly. Right? And so, yeah, like, you know, like you know, I mean, here, you know, this, there's an important mistake, which is many people look at politicians and say, "What fools they are! They don't have any skills at all." Like, obviously, they won a contest that where millions of people would like to win. It wasn't it wasn't coincidence. They they did have some That's incredible true. skill. That's a good point. It's just what in the world are these skills that are required to get to the top? Because it's not being a reasonable person or a fair-minded person, not being knowledgeable, not understanding, it's not about understanding cost-benefit analysis, it's not about being far-sighted. And then it's like, well, what is it about? And like, it's about getting people to like you and hate your enemy. That's what it counts. Yeah, Trump was a great exemplar of that because he translated, I mean, people were kind of shocked at Trump's election, but if you think about it, all he specialized in is getting eyes on him, bluster, mm -hmm. uh, bombast, oh, yeah. and kind of like, you know, tarring and feathering opponents like for years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we dive into the book, I wanted to uh, just uh, ask you a couple of questions about your background mm -hmm. and help our listeners mm -hmm. kind of get sure. a feel for your, um, you know, viewpoints. So I think just to start with, like, how, how did you get into economics? Like, what made you become uh, a, a professor and, and pursue the study of this subject for so many years? Hmm. Well, so I've known I wanted to be a professor, or at least been interested in being a professor since I was an early teenager. Originally, I wanted to be an English professor. I was a big fan of literature. And then when I was you know, late 11th grade, I read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, and she talked about how we should have a totally free market economy. And that sounded really weird to me, but this is the nice wondering, well, so is that even possible? And that question of, is it even really possible to have a free market economy was what got me reading economics to understand how economies work and understand prices and incentives and that kind of thing. So, uh, so my last year of high school, I spent a lot of time reading economics. And then by the time that I was starting in my undergraduate, starting my undergraduate degree, then I was doing basically economics and philosophy and trying to decide which one I wanted to be a professor of. Finally, probably my junior year said, all right, I think I will do economics rather than philosophy. Um, then I got my PhD at Princeton to finish in four years. And then ever since I've been a professor of economics at George Mason University in, uh, near, you know, in Fairfax, Virginia. That's awesome. It's like a pretty straight path from undergrad yeah, I mean, like it's. You know, I'm, 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 def I'm definitely lucky. Things worked out for me. They could have easily worked out very poorly. So much of my career, I really owe to Tyler Cowan helping me out. He was someone that I met right before I started graduate school, and then he was mentoring me through graduate school. And then when it came time for hiring, he was a strong advocate for me as the best candidate. So you know, like I owe him uh, a lot. Yeah, I could have just ended up. You know, horrors as an economic consultant. <laughs> I could have ended up with some 
unpleasant, highly paid job <laughs> instead of getting to enjoy my life. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a professor who was an econ consultant and uh, he, he was a huge fan of, uh, of you and Tyler. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, it's living great. vicariously, I guess. A little cool. bit. Yeah. So since you talked about loving literature and your path through English to economics, who are some of your most important intellectual influences? Hmm. So in literature, my big, my, my, my greatest love, honestly, are the Russians, and I'm not afraid to keep saying it. So you know, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, I was mentioning Ayn Rand, I really put her in this Russian philosophical novelist tradition. I think if you understand that tradition, you realize most of the complaints about her as a novelist really apply to the whole genre. So if you don't like her, really, you shouldn't like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy either. In terms of other intellectual influences, let's see, early on, honestly, Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises, I eventually wound up writing some very strong critiques of their work and decided they were wrong about a lot of things, but still they played a big role in my thinking. Let's see, other people... Um, you know, Frederick Bastiat, actually, someone that made a big influence on me, and I think he's really underrated as a thinker. Let's see, um, you know, Richard Posner. Richard Posner's Economic Analysis Law. I mean, in a way, when I was most disillusioned with economics and thinking maybe I didn't want to do it, I picked up some of Posner's books as an undergraduate and said, oh, no, this really is cool. I really love this. I want to do more of this. In philosophy, the really big influence for me is Michael Humer. Uh, he's actually a living philosopher that I, I met in my freshman year in Paul Feyerabend's ancient philosophy class. And since then, he's become famous and influential, deservedly so, but I think not nearly as much as he really merits. He's written several works of philosophy that I think are just the best that have ever been done by any human being on their topics. Wow, that's a strong statement. Yeah, yeah, I, re I remember that's one of the notes. Uh, I noted that down. I think in a couple of your essays, you mentioned humor. Um, so it's definitely on the list, maybe for a future episode. We'll, we'll have to yeah. dig oh, into yeah. his work. You know, like an, another person who's been a big influence on me is my, my, my colleague, Robert Hansen, who's my best friend. Uh, he's someone who especially got me really into betting. So I didn't really think much about betting early on. And then when he showed up and when we hired him, he talked about it a lot. You know, betting markets, but also just betting in general as a way of clarifying questions and disciplining one's own megalomania, which I definitely need a lot of. <laughs> Don't we all? And you know, it's really because of him that I have this, this hobby of publicly betting people. Right? And, and I think I learned something good from him because I've got 23 bets that have matured and I've won all 23. So I feel good about that. Wow, that's a strong record. Like another huge influence on me is uh, political psychologist Phil Tetlock. Uh, so he has two really, really, really good books that have really influenced me. Ah, super forecasting. Yes, yeah, so his uh, you know, ex expert political yeah. judgment, how good is it, how can we know, as well as super forecasting are two important inputs uh, to my self-knowledge. And I think reading him has been a big help for me to win all these bets because he really does teach people how to think correctly. Yeah, we, we really want to cover uh, super forecasting um, on the podcast. And so that's mm -hmm. been on our on our docket. Yeah. But the other one, um, we it's not really on our radar. Mm -hmm. As well as uh, the other thinkers you mentioned. So I'm excited to yeah. research them. Okay. 
So, if you could change only one thing about the American economy, what would it be and why? If you could wave your wand. I'd wave my wand to create open borders, no doubt in my mind there. I have a whole book called Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration. I think that immigration laws are not just more, more morally deeply unjustified, but they are incredibly destructive. I think this really is something where almost everyone on earth would be better off if we would just change the laws so that anyone on earth was free to live and work anywhere they wanted. I know this seems like a crazy and radical view, but I will say the, you know, the estimates of the harm of immigration restrictions are so immense because really you are creating a situation where an enormous number of people are stuck in countries with low productivity. And we know very clearly that if you take one of these people and just stamp his papers and say you're free to work in a richer country, suddenly as if by magic their productivity skyrockets. It would therefore stand to reason, well, if that works for one person, how about we let in a whole lot of them and see what happens. Uh, there are a number of ways where this might go wrong, theoretically. I just don't think any of them are actually very important. If anything, I think the simple estimates are actually an understatement. I mean, most obviously, one thing that we know about economic growth is that the whole heart of it is new ideas. Right now, we have billions of people who live and die almost cut off from the rest of the world economy. We never find out what intellectually they could have contributed to the patrimony of humanity. And just to create a world where the ideas that right now, right now are stillborn could come out and be shared by the world. I know, you know just the you know, just the idea, like the person that was able to cure cancer right now, he could be growing up in an obscure village in India, right? And maybe he'll die of diarrheal disease or something like that before he even gets to open up a science textbook, right? And like you know, any and just just to think, like like you. Know, what are we missing? What are we missing? It's probably a lot, actually. Um, so, yeah, you know, again, like that's why I did write a book on it. But you know, it combines the general point of you know, government power being used negligently and without regard to the harm, combined with the actual facts of the matter, which is that it's immensely beneficial to let people move from places where productivity is low to places where it's high. I found um, your argument intellectually very compelling um, and hard to refute, but emotionally challenging because it's something that's so outside of the political norm that, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just was jarring to consider. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's very striking about public opinion about immigration is you know, almost everybody feels feels this way, feels the same way as you do emotionally about immigration to their country, and yet actually most people are quite favorable towards immigration in their area. Now, this is striking because, well, which one is anything yeah. to do with first-hand experience? Like, does anyone experience a country? You don't really experience a country. You can experience a local area. Yeah, that's a very, uh, yeah, very good point. Yeah, so, like, yeah. people's actual first-hand experience with immigration is generally positive. So where do they get their ideas about whether immigration is good for a country? They get it from media. You get it from television. You have a story. Oh, my God, isn't it terrible what's happening? There's a right. migration crisis. Look at this. Stalingrad station in Paris. There, there, there's horrible violence going on there. Therefore, let's go and keep another million people who have nothing to do with that out of the country. Let them go and suffer in a refugee camp or worse. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's I would just say people's first-hand experience yeah. with immigrants are usually quite good. There's more of a yeah. very, very deeply ingrained xenophobia, which is not from experience. It's from 
you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's from you know, the you know, media, first of all. And again, like we just understand what is the whole point of the media. Mm -hmm. It's to go and find the worst thing that happened on Earth and make sure everyone hears about it. It's not to give people a statistically representative yeah, very true. of the world. Right? So that's why I really, yeah, I mean, I often urge people, look, you're like, you have to understand the media will melt your brain. It's not telling you how things are, really. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's not literal lies, usually, but rather it's just so unrepresentative that it just makes you more confused to watch it. Yeah, 100%, which is why, I mean, it's part of why we started this podcast to mm -hmm. promote um, the intake of slightly less processed information. Um, mm -hmm. But but on, on the immigration issue, I think I think for me, by no means am I anti-immigrant because we are we are immigrants. Um, but it's more so the question of degree. For some reason, my my fear starts to kick in when you say open borders because. I, um, I imagine, you know, a wave of uh, transformation for some reason. I mean, the way you frame it, it's very positive. And intellectually, it makes sense that it would be a, a positive wave of transformation. So maybe it's the uncertainty that kind of, you know, and, and I think the media definitely has something to do with it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's also true that if you visualize open borders as a million people show up tomorrow, then it would be totally reasonable to be worried about that or see it as a disaster. Thing is, is that's not how immigration works in the real world. The real story of immigration is that there are well-known patterns to how immigration works. Right? Uh, when you open up a border, you don't see normally a flood. Rather, what you see is a snowball. Starts off small and then gradually builds and builds and builds. Yeah. It's scary to be the first immigrant front into a country. The first person from your country to go to another country, you're all alone. You don't have any contacts. There's no one around. There's no, you know, there's no one shares your culture. Right. But once that one person goes, it's easier for yeah. a second person, a third person, and it builds. Uh, we have a nice experiment with this with uh, Puerto Rico. We've had open borders with them since 1904. Initially, it was only a few thousand people came. Right? Yeah, but then over time, it built and built and built. And now over 100 years later, over half of all people of Puerto Rican descent now live in the 50 United States. But there was no point when it was a flood or a swamping or anything like that. And rather, well, it's something where like, you should expect a whole lot to come in the longer run, but this is a period where there's plenty of time for business and construction, you know, business to go and create jobs for them, for construction to make homes for them. Right. The people that are likely to come right away are those who already have friends and family right here. And again, that problem is one that it is, is basically solves itself. Like if someone wants to come and they got friends and family here, why is anyone worried about that? That's exactly the kind of person where they've got a great path to integration into society. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, what, what this kind of uh, leads me to as well is this theory of moral approximates. So, mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about just to realize how far off the table open borders really is, um, mm -hmm. Is, is kind of shocking, right? Like you were saying, Democrats are like talking about 98% closed borders and Republicans are talking mm -hmm. about 99. But based on the yeah. rhetoric, you would think that, I mean, it's completely different, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. I mean, you know, this, this is usual in politics, like I said. Like, like you know, this, this is about demagoguery. Each side wants to go and make hyperbolic statements to make their friends angry at the other side, to thump their chests and feel like they're very different from the others. It'd be very hard for both parties to admit on immigration our views are actually quite similar in the broad scheme of things. 
Um, and, you know, I'd say like, you know, the really big difference between Democrats and Republicans is not about the amount of legal immigration they want to let in. It's basically about how do you feel about immigrants that are currently here? With Democrats having a more favorable view towards yeah. those that are already here and Republicans being more negative. But in terms of letting more in, you, know, you can see this yeah. with like, you know, Bernie Sanders and what he had to say about immigration or Paul Krugman. It's like, look, for the ones that are already here, they should be treated just like American citizens. But for everyone who's outside this country, no. They're, you know, like, we shouldn't let them in. That's going to cause all kinds of problems. Let their own country figure it out. I mean, well, well what's happened is their, their country's version of working things out, it's not very good. And so, you know, like, if you were born in Haiti and say, well, just you know, let, right. this, let Haiti work it out. Like, Haiti's been trying to work it out for 200 years. It doesn't, it's, they've done a terrible job. I just want to leave and go to some country that works. Like, nope, sorry, tough luck. Stay home. Yeah. 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 So this wouldn't be uh, an episode of Reading Rebellion if I didn't go to the book uh, at least once uh, and pull a quote. So in one of your essays, um, Immigration, My Eyes Work Fine, and I guess just real quick for context, again, the book is How Evil Are Politicians? This is a collection of essays and articles that were originally published on Brian's uh, blog. So um, he's kind of really arranged them into this really awesome um book with making a cohesive argument about, you know, politics and, and the way things are, um, I guess the way our systems are set up and, and the natural outcomes from thinking about politics in this kind of public choice based way. But anyway, so the essay is, uh, immigration, my eyes work fine. And you said, put it all together. And what do I see? I see human beings without the good fortune to be born in the first world, escaping poverty through honest toil. I see these largely admirable people singled out for public scorn and legal persecution. And I see that the reason for their ill treatment is not that they're breaking the law, taking jobs, using welfare, or any other choice they make, but because the foreigners in our midst and the foreigners at the gates are the last easy outlets for outgroup bias. Um, I just thought that was such a like succinct and, and eloquent kind of description of, of the argument. I really love that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, the genesis of that piece is, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like me on social media, and their usual story is, oh, Brian, you're just an ivory tower professor. You don't know how the real world really works. In this piece, I say, well, it's not like the people that are criticizing me live in third world poverty and know how that is. So, like, where do they get off going and acting like I'm so blind to the facts of the world? In any case, uh, this one I just wanted to focus on. Look, this is not something I've read in a book. This is what I actually see with my own eyes. And, and so we like you know, all theory aside, all social science aside, when I actually meet immigrants, I'm puzzled by what the problem is. Like, why is it the people are so opposed? And you say, well, that one's fine. Well, how about another one? No, 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 we don't want another one. Well, why not? What was wrong? Was there something wrong with the first one? Right? It is just this strange desire to say no without really much of a reason. Which again, you could see this was you know if yeah. Well, you know, again, it was, it was basically a matter of they're going to come live in your house, you could understand, but that's not how immigration works. They don't come and live in your house. They go and, and there's a landlord who goes and rents them a place to live. There's an employer who wants to hire them, a store that wants to go and sell them stuff. Like the idea that this is some kind of intrusion onto you is really based on this you know, strangely expansive view of what you're entitled to. So I, mean, I think of it as sort of the bully's classic, you're breathing my air. You are breathing my air. Yeah, that, yeah, that is an affront to me. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you know, 
breathing your air is yeah. like that's just you know it's exactly the opposite of, of an actionable offense, right? Like you, well, you're breathing my air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. I, I thought your framing of um, illegal immigrants today being comparable to blacks under Jim Crow mm-hmm. was, you know, a real wake up call. Because, because again, I think with your philosophical training, uh, when you're constructing these arguments, if if you if you walk through the argument piece by piece, everything follows so well that it's hard to refute, and it just mm-hmm. kind of like. I don't know. It, it inexorably opens your mind. It's like, uh, well, I wish it was an extra ball. <laughs> I I've not found my argument to be all that convincing with people that are hostile or even neutral. I'm always going for writing something that will change the mind of somebody that doesn't already agree with me. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's a case where. You know, as, you know, as I explained, I think the piece is called you know, Tell Me the Difference Between Jim Crow and Immigration Restrictions. And I point out that actually the legal treatment of immigrants is much worse, you know, of illegal immigrants is much worse than the treatment of blacks under Jim Crow. You know, so under Jim Crow, there are some places blacks aren't allowed to live. There are some jobs they're not allowed to do. But under current U.S. law, illegal immigrants, there are no jobs they're legally allowed to do in the U.S., no, no place in the U.S. that they're legally allowed to live. And then you know, the question is, why is this okay? Again, I think for, you know, most people do come down to, well, blacks were citizens and illegal immigrants aren't, so we don't really owe illegal immigrants anything. And I say, this really sort of just ignores, in a way, the whole rationale for Jim Crow, which is just to say, well, we don't consider blacks to be equal citizens with us. They're not actually part of our society. And if it's okay to just say, look, some of these people aren't part of our society, so we don't have to treat them well, yeah, we, uh, with an accord with common decency, then the question is, well, then what was wrong with Jim Crow? There's sort of some idea of there's a natural fact about who is in your society and who isn't, and if you and if you have and if you try and if you want to go and take someone who's currently in there and change the rules, then you're evil in some objective sense. But it's really is just a, a strange distinction that people are you know, seemingly very comfortable making. Yeah, in that piece, I did want to get people to wonder, like, what, is yeah. it really so clear that there is a big difference between these two things? And I don't think there is much difference. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the one on Hiroshima and Milai was like that too. Um, and in all of these mm-hmm. cases, just so you know, prior to reading this book, I was not a radical open borders advocate. <laughs> <laughs> um, nor, nor did I think that Hiroshima and Milai were uh, equivalent, but I, I'm pretty convinced um, on both fronts. The Hiroshima one was was um, was very challenging too, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like the, the the argument there, you know, like so, you know, why why was it justified to drop nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And well, you know, it ended the war, and like, well, what about all of the innocent people there? And it's like, well, they're not innocent because they attacked Pearl Harbor. Like, well, it's not like the janitor had anything to do with that. They didn't. Right. And certainly it's not like the baby of the janitor had anything to do with that. So if you're going to say that it's okay to go and murder a bunch of innocent people in order to go and win your war, then you take a look at the infamous Malay Massacre. And again, this is one where U.S. troops were ordered to just murder everyone in a village. There was a heroic guy, a heroic U.S. soldier who actually saved some of them and then reported them, which is why we even know about it. For all we know, there were a bunch of other such massacres that just never came to the public's attention. 
But the question there is, mm -hmm. well, so was it wrong to go and murder everyone in the village? And like almost everyone will say, well, of course. It's like, well, there were some guerrillas that, that were among the people. How can you make sure no guerrillas get out, get out alive unless you kill everybody? It's like, well, that's going pretty far. And then the, 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 if you just come down to, well, like, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were okay because they ended the war. Miley was not justified because it didn't end the war. It's like, well, what if we just did 100 or 1,000 Miley's? And if, what if that was enough to go and win? Then would it be okay to go and massacre 100,000 right. villages so in, in order that this great good would, would come? And again, this is one where I think people are just very to try to justify what happened rather than to really ponder the, you know, the very troubling parallels between these examples. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for me, some of the arguments that I heard previously on Hiroshima were like, from a cultural standpoint, the Japanese of that time were likely to fight to the last man. There were still Japanese soldiers in the 70s and 80s on remote islands fighting. But but the point is, did we have to strike a civilian center and kill that many people? Was there a certainty that that would end the war? Was there a reasonable cost-benefit analysis? Was there an attempt to mitigate civilian casualties? Um, it just seems like a highly uncertain. Mm -hmm. I mean, my understanding is the Japanese were willing to give almost unconditional surrender, surrender months earlier. All they just thought, like, we just have to keep the emperor. This yeah. is one where I'd say, well, look, suppose that you that you, like, you don't want to go and, and like accept these conditions. So it would have been a lot better to say, yes, yes, occupy them and then get rid of the emperor than to go and drop nuclear bombs on tens of thousands of innocent people. There, like, I, I, my, uh, I actually got uh, word through the grapevine that this question was posed to one of the greatest historians of the, uh, of the you know, U.S.-Japanese relations in World War II and, and uh, atomic diplomacy. And said, you know, if we had double-crossed the Japanese, that would have forever tarnished Americans' credibility. Like, it sounds like a great overstatement of the actual level of reputational cost. But in the end, the U.S. basically gave the deal that the Japanese, from what I've heard, were willing to get, were willing to take months earlier. So it seems especially you know, especially futile to have done it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting comparison. Um, and again, not one that I thought about. Um, just another interesting thought on that is that even within like World War II, you know, people will at least occasionally, you know, contrarians like yourself, maybe, I don't know if you consider yourself a contrarian, but um, sure. they'll be like, okay, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, this was terrible. But we, we also don't really talk about, you know, the firebombing of Tokyo, um, which mm -hmm. actually killed, you know, as many or, or, or potentially more people than, than Hiroshima, mm -hmm. like burned down, you know, 200,000 buildings. Um, and there was no military justification there at all. Uh, so it's, it's just really interesting to think about why are the re reasons that certain events are portrayed certain ways and, and we as a society don't really have an issue with it. Um, yeah. I mean, so most people are very nationalistic. Whatever their country did is fine, even praiseworthy. It's not like people are really stepping back and trying to apply you know, and apply common standards to every country that's ever existed. You know, there's, there's a lot of rationalization. Um, you know, top of that, of course, most people just don't care much about the issues anyway. 
<laughs> so if you don't care much about the issue anyway, you hear <laughs> the, the first the first take you hear, it's the standard one, you just repeat it and then you get through life and you're fine. Yeah, I think the sheer cognitive dissonance of having to um, having to consider something like that is, is very difficult. Like I know I know for me it was very difficult reading that essay because I have a, a strong pro-American bias and I'd like to think mm-hmm. that the decisions we made were uh, good ones and for good cause, but it's undeniable. I mean, when you when you put it in the terms of like, if Milai had been conducted hundreds of times, would that have been uh, appropriate if it ended the war? I mean, it's clear that that's immoral and unethical and it wouldn't have been appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to get people just, 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 just to face the, you know, like, the, you know, the, I mean, you know, like, here, here's, here's the way that I often put it. Often I'll give a talk to an audience and I'm, I know that I'm going and defending a position that most people consider highly implausible and, or yeah, even crazy. And I say, look, here's a position I'm going to defend. You, you probably think that it's crazy. I don't think I'm going to change your mind about the actual position during a one-hour talk. But what I want to change your mind about is to come away and say, okay, that view is not crazy. It's wrong, but not crazy. If in one hour I can move you from crazy to mistaken, but still I can understand how someone could think that, then I feel like I have accomplished a lot in a one-hour talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that 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 is a lot. Um, that is a lot. Though, yeah, for, for me, I've definitely been... Um, been significantly convinced on on several issues. I think another just macro benefit of this book for me has been zooming out from, mm-hmm. you know, the the local debate between Democrats and Republicans and seeing the nature of the game and the outcomes it produces more broadly. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so I've been happy happy for that, appreciative of that. Um, so. I was going to ask about moral due diligence, um, mm. and specifically, I was going to ask. Um, let's say we did force politicians to do moral due diligence <laughs> and really think about and justify the actions they were taking. How could you avoid the kind of like Leninist trap of coming up with pseudo moralistic justifications for atrocities that emotionally inspire you? Because this is something we've been talking about on the podcast when we talked about utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's pretty much what we are. That's pretty much what we already have. I mean, in a way, like you know, I mean, I have this whole chapter on the banality of Leninism, where I say, like, the heart of it is a refusal to do moral due diligence, to get so excited by the idea of doing e- of doing evil that good might come, that you never really sit down and say, well, do we need to do evil for good? Like, do we actually have any evidence that doing evil is going to make things better? much less so much better that it actually justifies yeah. doing these bad things. Right? I mean, of course, just passing a law saying all politicians must do due diligence is futile. They're the ones enforcing it themselves. Uh, the reason that I bring this up is just right. for understanding how we should morally evaluate politicians and to realize these are people who wield great power. They do terrible things to people. And for the vast majority of them, it's not that they actually spend a lot of time saying, gee, this is really terrible to do these things to these people, but if I don't do it, something even worse is going to happen. I've really thought hard about if there's any more humane way of accomplishing the same goal, and unfortunately there isn't. So tragically, we're going to have to go forward and do this terrible thing. And I think you really, uh, you just can't honestly say that more than one politician in 100 does that kind of thing. It's just not the way that they operate. Rather, they're power-hungry people, and they they got their hands on the levers of power. And they say, okay, well, now we can finally get something done. 
right? The idea that a politician would say, yes, but are we violating the rights of innocent people while we do this? Or are we being fair to our enemies when we do this? Or you can just imagine you know, the, a politician before he acts saying, well, wait a second, before we go forward, let's make sure that we haven't in any way mistreated our enemies. Like, that's, like, you just really can't imagine more than, you know, like more than, you know, like other than like a platypus politician, like the one weird politician, like that's just not the way that they operate. Right? They, you know, like when you know, they are so hungry for power, they finally get their hands on the dials. The last thing they're going to do is say, well, wait, wait, before I start moving the dials, let me make sure I'm not doing anything immoral. Right. Instead, it's like, OK, yes, finally, finally got my hands on the dials. Let's go full speed ahead. I think for me, another one of the really big uh, takeaways from this book that I think will be really valuable like going forward for, is this idea of, of power hunger and really an introduction to the theory mm -hmm. of public choice mm -hmm. um, and bringing this sort of economic uh, way of thinking about things to politics. And then mm -hmm. also the great thing about the book is you have all these examples of using it. But mm -hmm. can you introduce just this idea of public choice? Right. So public choice is really just uh, another term for using economics to understand politics. I will say, like in the book, I present some very standard public choice ideas, although a lot of what I see myself as doing is trying to improve public choice, to enrich it psychologically, to think about it more philosophically as well. I mean, look, there's this, you know, I have, you know, write quite a, bit, quite a bit of the book about power hunger. It's common in public choice to say that politicians are vote maximizers. Uh, which is one way, of course, that you can satisfy your power hungry. But to think of it as the more basic motivation of politicians, the one that explains what's going on in politics throughout history around the world, this is something that I think most people in public choice don't really emphasize nearly enough. So you know, what I do in one of the chapters on power hunger is I say, look, you know, economists are already used to this idea of people in business are greedy, they're out there to make money, and then realizing, well, as you know, if you're out there to make money, and there's competition, and there's reputation, and consumers are reasonable, then you wind up getting a good social result, even though the business people are just in it to make money, because this is these, this is a scenario where the way to make money is to make customers happy, and therefore, in the process of enriching yourself, you wind up helping your customers as well. Uh, with politicians, I say, just as business people are fundamentally greedy, business uh, politicians are fundamentally power hungry. I mean, this is you know, for most of human history. I don't think anyone who knew the facts would really deny it. If you look at most of human history, the idea that politicians are looking to expand their territory, get more population and resources, so that they can rule it all as a dictator, this is just the standard way that politics operates for almost all of human history. And then to think, well, as soon as we got democracy, did this motivation disappear? Suddenly, the most powerful motivation in all of politics vanished, kapoof, just because you have democracy. And that really doesn't sound remotely plausible. So really, the difference is just that now the way to get power isn't by murdering all your enemies at the Red Wedding. Now the way to get power is by getting voters to like you. Right? If you think that this mechanism actually works well, then you might say, all right, well, the politicians are power hungry, but because they need to make voters well off in order to get power, everything works. But when you put it that way, it's like, hmm, is it really true that politicians need to make things work well 
in order to get elected, or could they just get elected based upon an appeal to emotions on the basis of personality by whipping up hatred against an outgroup? Mm -hmm. right? And when you hear that, it's like, hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that they could actually and do. And it's the idea that you know democracy works; it does for politicians what market competition does for business is just not correct, right? So you know, business, though motivated by greed, yeah. is over is is. You know, with with rare exceptions, a benevolent and welcoming force. It's one where you open, you go into a grocery store, and I don't know anyone who feels fear in a grocery store. <laughs> it's a great example. It's like, well, they're out here to just make money off of you. They aren't. They're, grocery store isn't here to get bread, is it? Okay, yeah, I know that, but they like they're doing a good job. They're offering me a bunch of products that I want. If I don't like it, I can take my money somewhere else. Things seem pretty good here. Whereas when you're watching the election returns on election night, you know, the idea of, look, there's nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> um, doesn't seem great at all. Really. <laughs> yeah. Meaning, like, like one of my favorite debating points against democracy is to say, look, even its biggest fans think that it's a disaster half the time. Even the biggest fans of democracy think it's a disaster half the time. It's only when their party's in power that they actually think that it's working well, which again is roughly about half the time. So what kind of a system is it where even its biggest fans say half the time it's a disaster? Right. <laughs> what a crummy system. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting point. And that's, again, a hard pill to swallow, but hard to deny. <laughs> um, but this ties into social desirability bias to me because democracy is one of these things where it's, it's, a, it's a sacred cow. It's a cloak. Um, it's a shield for, for uh, various other kinds of arguments, right? Like, mm -hmm. you can never say without cringing, you know, I want less democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say it. I don't, I don't cringe. I, don't, I wouldn't cringe. <laughs> I'm past that. <laughs> yes, me and my colleague, Garrett Jones, there were some public complaints about him for titling his book 10% Less Democracy. I mean, like, what could be more mild than just to say 10% Less Democracy? And yet... There were some people who were losing their minds just over the title. It's not like they had read it or anything. And, um, yeah, so I mean, it's probably worth just, it's probably just worth explaining what social desirability bias is. I keep telling people this is the most underrated concept in all of psychology. Right? There's a lot of great ideas in psychology. Many of them have, become, have gained notoriety. Social desirability bias is still barely discussed outside of narrow circles, but it's a very intuitive idea. It just says that when the truth is ugly, people lie. And often when the lies become so ubiquitous, people actually start to sincerely believe absurd things. You know, things like, oh, nothing is more important than education. It's like, isn't food more important than education? <laughs> That's true, yeah. So... Like wrong, and <laughs> it is not true that nothing is more important. Or you know, like some of the some of the most mundane examples are things like, uh, you know, did you vote in the last election? Did you go to church last Sunday? And we'll see that more people say yes than actually did. Right? So the truth sounds bad. The truth sounds ugly. So people lie. Um, you know, one one of my favorite examples in the world of politics is this. Have you ever heard anyone say? we need to fight this war. There's a 50% chance that this war will improve things, 30% chance it makes no difference, 20% chance it makes things worse, but those are good odds and let's go forward. Never. No, that's a fantastic point, yeah. It's, no one would ever in politics would ever declare a war in those terms. 
Instead, it's uh, instead it's like as long as we stay together as an American yeah. people, victory is assured. <laughs> right? This kind of complete nonsense. Look, you know, it's one thing to say that maybe the war will work out, but to go and say as long as we stay together, there's no there, there can be no outcome other than victory. It's like, yeah, that's just an absurd lie, right? Doesn't sound you know it sounds good. <laughs> you know, it sounds good to say you know, like you know, you know it's like a romantic comedy slogan. You know, like true love conquers all. Like always does it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean. Of course, you might say, well, if it doesn't, it wasn't true, right? <laughs> you go down that route, but you know, like, love conquers all. Right, right. Unfalsifiable. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually a great segue to the section on pacifism. I really liked your essay, The Common Sense Case for Pacifism, because it was very just like, I mean, like the title, just common sense. It was like, here are a few basic facts that we take to be true. And here's the only logical conclusion that we can make. So can you walk us through that, that case a little bit? Sure. So just to start, I'm well aware that pacifism is one of those ideas that sounds really good, but almost everyone thinks is totally unrealistic and will lead to a complete disaster. So I just want to acknowledge that up front. I'm not the kind of person that takes this lightly. Every now and then people read it and then they'll say, well, obviously you haven't heard about Hitler. But yeah, I, I've heard about Hitler actually. I've read over a hundred books about him. I know a lot. <laughs> I know a lot yeah. about this actually. Yeah. Um, uh, here is the you know, the very simple case. All right. So you know, premise one: you know, the short run costs of war are terrible. All right. Obviously so. So like you know, like in the short you know, short run cost of war is you have mass death, horrible people, you know, people getting maimed, bad stuff. Right. And especially in the modern world, a large share of these people are innocent people. Right? These are people who they're not, you know, they're not soldiers, they haven't done anything other than just happen to exist in a country. And yet, it is, you know, with modern weapons, really, you know, either there's deliberate murder going on where you just firebomb a city and say, yeah, haha, well, you know, <laughs> everyone there dies. Or at least there is what we call you know, manslaughter where you say, look, well, I didn't want to kill those people. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when I firebombed the city. You know, if, you know, you know, like if, if, if I could have firebombed it on a weekend festival when everyone's out of town, I would have done that instead. But unfortunately, there wasn't such a festival during the time I was dropping my bombs, so they all got killed. But, you know, yeah, so, you know whoops, whoops, or, well, regrettable. Anyway, so first premise is just the short-run costs of war are clearly terrible. Uh, second premise, the long-run benefits of war are highly uncertain. Right here, I am drawing heavily on the work of political psychologist Phil Tetlock, where he actually went and tested the ability of political experts to accurately forecast the results of things like wars. And guess what? They're just not very good. They're not very good. And, and again, and not just on minor issues. You remember the slogan of World War I. It's the war to end all wars. Right. Uh, hmm. Well, we can remember it's called yeah. World War One, strongly suggesting that it didn't work out like that. And this is true for you know, war in general. Not that they never actually lead to good results, but that our ability to actually accurately forecast when they will is very poor. Right. Um, so that is the second premise: is the long-run benefits of war are highly uncertain. And then the last premise is that before you go and murder innocent people or commit manslaughter on innocent people, you ought to know with, con with, with great confidence that the long-run benefits greatly exceed the short-run costs, right? This is inspired by 
a famous philosophical hypothetical, sometimes called the force organ donation hypothetical. And in this hypothetical just says, you know, you're a surgeon, you have five patients, each patient needs an organ in order to survive. One needs some new lungs, one needs a new heart, one needs a liver, so on. And then a perfectly random guy walks by. He has no friends, no family, no one cares about him, no one will miss him. Is it all right to grab that guy, murder him, harvest his organs, and save five people? Right. Right. Almost everyone says, no, that's not okay. Right now, if it was a million people, maybe we would say, all right, I guess for a million, gee, I guess we have to. Right, but five to one is not enough to make most people think that it's all right to just go and murder an innocent bystander because you happen to need his organs. And the same logic goes through the war. We're talking, any actual war, talking about murdering a lot of innocent people. And, and it's one thing to do that when you know with great confidence that that's going to save a lot more innocent lives. But in the real world, we really don't have that knowledge. Uh, so that is the common sense case for pacifism. Now, lurking under the surface here, there's a common view of, well, no, 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 they're not innocent because the Japanese are, are collectively to blame for Pearl Harbor. It's all right to kill all of them after what they did. And it's like, hmm, yeah, this sounds wrong. Like, like you know, Japanese janitor, what did he ever do? He didn't plan this. He doesn't have any knowledge of it, right? Much less his kids. If there was a serial killer, we wouldn't go and gas his baby with him just because the baby lived in his house with him or something. So, like, almost everyone say that's, like, horrifying collective guilt. No, that's totally morally wrong, right? If you really push them and said, well, what if we had to kill a baby to save a million people? All right, well, then maybe. But here's the thing. In the real world, we don't face that case where we kill one person and then we know with great confidence we're saving a million lives. Rather, we have the actual way that war works, which is that people fight a bloody war and then sometimes it works out and sometimes things get even worse. You know, World War One led to World War Two as night follows day, right? And like, what you know, like all of the horrible blood that was shed in World War One? What did it lead to? Something even worse. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I think you you described this in one this this common sense idea in uh, what's the use of crying over spilled blood? And you said, mm -hmm. if you can't calmly say we can be extremely confident that killing lots of innocents in the short run will vastly improve the world in the long run you shouldn't kill lots of innocents. And killing lots of innocents is what every modern war entails. I mean, when you phrase it like that, it just seems so obvious and mm -hmm. so logical that it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But it's not yeah. an argument that uh, even enters the mainstream discourse most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about that line uh, during the Ukraine war and wondering if I've overstated it. So far, I don't know of Ukraine actually killing any noticeable number of innocent people. I think the worst you could say is that they are... You know, not only conscripting hundreds of thousands of men, but also actually prevent, you know, preventing any man from 18 to 60 from leaving the country, from leaving a war zone, seems like a bad thing to do. Uh, again, if the war proceeds, though, like it wouldn't be at all surprising if Ukraine wound up doing some terrible things to some innocent people. Um, you know, if basically, if they're a bit more successful, then they would be plausibly they will. You know, if Ukraine were to actually think that they could take back, back the, the uh, Donbass region, well, what's that going to be? That's going to be another war of house-to-house -house fighting in urban areas, right? you know, like you know, the kinds of, you know, of, things, of things that happen when you do that. So you're going to kill a lot of his people, of course. Yeah, that's actually a great segue because I wanted to go to your essay, You Don't Know the Best Way to Deal with Russia. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> wrote in 20 written in 2014 yeah exactly so basically the premise of this essay is you describe an argument from the economists in 2014 where they talk about how you know we must do this we have to do that clearly this is the case and you talk about how there's no empirical evidence used at all and historically these people can't make predictions um and i just thought it was so relevant like you could have written that piece yesterday Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was super interesting. I'd love to get your thoughts on that and on the Ukraine and Russia situation right now and, um, you know, NATO and Finland uh, as well. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so you don't know the best way to deal with Russia. Yeah, so this was a response to an op-ed in The Economist. I have little doubt that whoever wrote that op-ed is now claiming complete vindication by facts. It's easy to claim vindication by facts when you don't make any really specific predictions or give any timeline, right? You know, as Phil Tetlock shows us, look, a prediction without a date is not a prediction, right? It's just grandstanding to say, look, if, we don't, if you don't listen to me, millions will die. It's like, by what date? If you don't give me a date, then I can never be proven wrong. I can just say, just sit and wait, then we'll find out. Right. And again, what I say in that piece was not that the economist is wrong, is that they don't really know, and it's just not true in general, that standing up to aggression is, is a reliable path to things working out better. Sometimes it does, sometimes it leads to the opposite thing. I say like you know, World War I, like I think very little, very little doubt, if, if just one of those major combatants had just backed down and said, I guess Serbia is not really that important, you can have it. Like that would have prevented World War I, right? I, mean, I don't think there's, it's very easy to deny that that's true. And so sometimes backing down actually does lead to peace, sometimes not. Um, I mean, like the case of the economists, if just Putin had had a heart attack to a year ago, the Ukraine war wouldn't be happening and the economists would be wrong. So how can you be so certain when such minor contingencies as the health of one man can completely change the outcome? Uh, yeah, so anyway, what, what, so the, the heart of that piece is just to say that people are greatly overconfident when they talk about the benefits of war. Uh, I mean, in terms of what's going on right now, let's see. I read something, uh, a recent statement from, I believe, the U.S. Secretary of Defense in an interview where he said something so asinine, I I just almost couldn't believe it. But the question was, well, aren't you worried that by further arming Ukraine, we are possibly going to lead to nuclear war with Russia? And then he said, well, here's something to remember. America has nuclear weapons, too. Uh, (laughs) Slow down, slow down. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. In that, in that case, there's nothing to worry about, right? Like, the whole idea of escalation is that well, something goes wrong, and you, know, like, you get to a state of, of paranoia, and then there's a blip on the radar, and then it's like, well, either if we don't launch now, like, we won't have a chance to do it. Yeah, so, like, like all during the Cold War, people are worried that two nuclear powers could wind up leading to, you know, like through, like not an immediate conscious plan, but through escalation and passions and just and just the fog of war leading to the destruction of civilization, right? It's still you know, really more possible than ever now. I'm not saying there's a high probability, but for the Secretary of Defense just to say something so foolish, right? And again, it's like, is he really just saying this, you know, Justice politics, or or is it actually is this the level of sophistication that he that he in fact has? I mean, I tend to think the latter. 
You need. This is one where I will honestly say that sometimes I say, look, it can't be as bad as all that, Brian. Like this is just you imagining the world, the people in power are totally negligent. And then when you get the, oh, yeah, the, the, the reveal of the documents on the planning of what's gonna happen in Iraq after we win, what will happen in Libya after we win, what will happen in Afghanistan after we win, and you, know, you, get the, you, you get to find out, so what was the plan for after victory? And the answer is there was no plan. All the brain power went into winning, none of the brain power went into what are we fighting for, and then you get the predictable result, which is, yeah, okay, you win the war, and now what? Well, I don't know, what do we do? Uh, right? And that's <laughs> all, all three of those cases. We saw the same, you know, you know a, a muscular military victory followed by complete, complete incompetence and completely incompetent handling of the occupation reconstruction because they themselves didn't know what they were doing. They, were, they just wanted to do something, right? They're like, we gotta take Saddam out. Well, then what? We'll worry about that afterwards. Like you really ought to worry about that right now, <laughs> right? Before you go right. and, and kill 100,000 innocent people, they should figure out what your plan is, see whether it's a good plan. Uh, but no, right? In the case of the Ukraine war, uh, so, you know, like, you know, tragic situation, the, you know, so, I mean, Putin, you know, I, I've known that he was a, you know, a unpleasant dictator for about the last 15 years anyway. I will confess to having higher hopes in the early 2000s and thinking, oh, he's just going to step down and Russia will normalize. That turned out to be totally wrong. The previous wars that he fought have been so limited uh, that until now I was thinking, well, really, he just wants to go and have some small victory for demagogic domestic purposes. What he's doing in Ukraine is so far outside of any of his previous actions. I am very surprised that he did it especially considering that he's turned 70 this year, right? He's acting like a much younger man, yeah. which is kind of scary in itself. Although I guess not as scary as if he was 30 doing this, then we'd have to worry about him doing it for the next 60 years, <laughs> right? So yeah. well, you know, he could drop dead yeah. any minute and let's hope for that. I think that at this point, there's a, it's very likely that if he suddenly dropped dead, that his replacement would back off or you know, things, things would improve. In terms of the world's rush to do something about it, though, uh, you know, it's it's the usual thing where people are really you know acting impulsively. They're they're very emotional about it, and the idea that they, this might be the, the our path to World War III doesn't seem to bother more than a few people. But it's a serious issue. I'd say the one thing about this war that I am extremely pleased by is just the reaction of the European Union to Ukrainian refugees. I would have thought it would be much more likely that they would just go and put machine guns on the border to keep Ukrainians in, that they would do this where they say you're all welcome to come. And really the only migration restriction is just for the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government is stopping men 18 to 60 from leaving, which by the way doesn't even make sense in military terms. What, you think like a 59-year-old guy is going to fight effectively? It's like, what's the plan there? It just doesn't make very much sense. <laughs> I mean, it really is more of like, like we're macho and like, like any man that wants to save his own life is a coward. And it's like, hey, like, like either that situation, like I'm not going to fight. Why can't I just leave? Like there's some countries that are willing to take me. I mean, the way that Poland went and increased its population by about 10% in a month, I was actually right there when that was happening. To see it was stunning. Because, of course, I've always thought that countries have a great ability to absorb immigrants, but that exceeded what I thought was doable. 
right? And it also just shows whenever countries said, oh, we yeah. can't take yeah. 50,000 refugees from Mexico, we're strained to capacity. It's like, no, you're not. This is just a convenient excuse when the real story is I don't want to. And the polls have really shown how if you actually go and want to, to rescue millions of people from a desperate situation, it's not hard. Really just you know, wave them in, give them, a, give them a piece of paper that says they can work, and things wind up working out you know, better than even I would have thought. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Brian, a pra practical question for you. <clears throat> Based on the fact that the political parties and the political system we're in um, is demagogic, uh, irrational, and, you know, generally ineffective, is the answer to just withdraw? I mean, how... What is the best way to proceed to like promote a positive outcome um, for us? Right. You know? you know, the honest answer is there's not that much that any one person can do. Um, I try to improve things a little bit, but I yeah. don't have any illusions about my book going and making Nicolas Maduro say, oh my God, I've been so terrible. I'm going to kill myself and fight <laughs> 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 or resign or whatever it would be. Right, so you know, right. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I try to yeah. do my you know, to do my part to push things in a better direction. It has some very tiny effect. Um, uh, I mean, I do tell people to try to you know to live, to live a decent life. Uh, you know, just first of all, because it's the right thing to do, and second of all, I think that you will be a happier person doing it uh, if you can push things in a better direction. Great, um, you know, but again, like honestly, you know, for one person to go and change things is really hard. Um, maybe people often get depressed by this, and my, my reaction is, well, what did you think? Do you really think that you could just pick up your phone and dial 911 and say, hey, demagogues are in charge, let's, get, let's stop that, and someone on the other end will say, oh, you're right, okay, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that by tomorrow. You know, that's just not how the world works. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know, like, if it was that easy to fix it, it would have already been fixed, honestly. Right. Right. I mean, there's, there's so much in this book. I mean... At the end of every um, snippet of this conversation, I can think of six different directions we can go in. Um, but related to this, one thing that I really uh, enjoyed was your your essay on self help versus collective action. Oh yeah. And how um, collectivists are allergic to the concept of self help. Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Yeah. So I, I was I, so I, I was doing this NPR uh, conversation with two socialists and. At one point, the interviewer said, so this view that self-help is effective, is this the fundamental difference between Brian and you guys? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And I said, well, it's a difference. I don't know that it's the difference. But yeah, afterwards, I was thinking about it and saying, yeah, well, if you are a demagogue seeking power, you don't want to have people believe that they can solve their own problems. Yeah. If you can solve your own problems just by waking up an hour early in the morning and doing a better job and uh, keeping your eyes open for opportunities or, you know, like asking around, trying to find a better job. If you can fix your own life that way, you don't need a demagogue to go and fix your life for you. Right? So I do think that it does make sense that mm -hmm. people who are power hungry feel a <laughs> resentment of people that just solve their own problems because, well, then you don't have any need of me. I need people who are helpless, who feel like without joining my, my collective that their lives are going to go nowhere. And again, what was really striking to me is when I was talking with the socialists is it's like you know I think I told them like imagine that 
you know, some, you know, look like, you know, you're teaching high school in a poor area and there's a 17 year old kid who says, what, you know, what, what should I do in order to live a better life than the rest of the people in my family? Like, would you really tell them, oh, there's nothing you can do with your own effort. You just have to go and join our socialist party and hope that we win. Like, like would you really tell a 17 year old that? Would that be a reasonable thing to tell a 17 year old, you know, versus saying, look, you, know, like you need to buckle down, do well in school, get a job. You know, you know, learn a good attitude, learn customer service, try to find a good occupation. Here are some good occupations that where there's a lot of upside potential. Learn to code. Good advice. Any responsible teacher that cared about that kid would go and put them on the path to self-help and would realize, look, it's not guaranteed, but compared to join my socialist party and we'll fix things. Like, yeah, that's not guaranteed either. In fact, that is a complete pipe dream, which pretty much worked for almost no one. So what are you talking about? All right, guys. So, how about we have one last question and then we wrap this up? Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. Ari, do you want to take the last question? Um, well, I, I I just thought a good tie in one one thing that I wanted to talk about was this idea of the real X defense because you're talking about socialists mm-hmm. just now, and a super common thing that you hear from socialists and communists is, oh well, there's never been real socialism. There's never been real communism. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to evaluating that? Yeah. Um, because I thought that was really interesting. Right. Well, there's a fantastic book by an economist at the Institute for Economic Affairs called Christian Niemitz. And the name of his book is Socialism, the Failed Idea That Never Dies. What he does in this book is he starts with this idea of that wasn't real socialism, that wasn't real communism. But he looks at it historically. And here's what he says. If you take a look at countries that people now say, not real socialism, not real communism, just basically all of them went through a honeymoon period where the entire world socialist movement was very hopeful about them and talked about how great they were. And during this period, no, no one or almost no one in the world socialist movement would question that Cuba is socialist or Russia is socialist or East Germany is socialist or Vietnam is. And then this goes on for quite a few years where the socialists themselves accept it as a genuine example of socialism. Then what happens is the system starts to be really obviously super disappointing. And that's where they get defensive and say, well, like, you know, they haven't had a fair chance. They've had obstacles. Uh, we still like them. And then finally, things get so bad that they just shut up about it and stop talking about it, how great it is. And they really just change the subject. And then finally, a little bit more time passes. And then they say that wasn't real socialism. Now, what's striking about Nemitz's historical story here, and you know, this is a pattern that he documents for really every major socialist country that's ever existed, is that it's not the critics of socialism that are saying that socialism, it failed. Rather, it's the friends of socialism who initially give their endorsement. And the only time that they wind up saying it's not real socialism is not based upon the structure being wrong. It's based upon the, the results being poor. So it really is a, a quite clear-cut case of after-the-fact redefinition. It's sort of like waiting to get the answer key for a standardized test and then erasing all your answers and changing them again. That's really what the not-real-socialism or communism defense is about. I mean, look, it'd be very different if there was a socialist who on day one said Lenin is a fake socialist, the Soviet Union is, is not a socialist country, but that's super rare. Normally, there's a worldwide wave of enthusiasm for any country that says they're going down the socialist route and self-identified socialists are really happy. They visit it, they say it's great. And then they change their mind later, not because 
of the, that the what the actual system of the country has changed, but because their own ideas did fail. Um, so that uh, has played a big role in my thinking. In terms of that precise piece, uh, you know, you say like you know, so of course anyone can do this real acts defense. So libertarians could go and say, well, United States is real capitalism. So anything that goes wrong in the United States, you can't go and use that to say that we're mistaken about things, right? Uh, of course. When you look around the world, the United States looks so good compared to almost every other country that you might want to go and claim some credit for it. But anyway, what I say in that piece is to decide whether or not it really does make sense to attribute or to, or to treat what happened as a fair test of the ideas. So basically you want to look at cases where you have a small group of true believers who somehow manage to get control of the whole country and then implement their idea and then see how it works. Right? And that has happened with socialists many dozens of times that a small group of true believers manages to get on top. And I say it's important you know, for a small group of true believers because this means they're not compromising their doctrines in order just to gain power. Right? Rather, you know, they're, they're like just, they just happen to, be, to, be, to, they happen to manage to get into the cockpit and do what they want to do. And I say in that sense, socialists do own the failures of socialism because they did manage to get into the cockpit a bunch of times and crash the plane. I say, but on the other hand, like there's really, I don't know of any country where very committed free market ideologues manage to actually get full control of the country, right? Uh, so I'd say the most that you'll see is that libertarians and strong and free market economists sometimes have a minor junior advisory role in certain real world governments, but to actually be in the cockpit running things, I don't know of any country where, where, where radical libertarians ever managed to get that. And what I say there is, by the same logic, you know, libertarians, free market economists, you know, they don't own the successes of capitalism in the same way that socialists own the failures of socialism. Say, so really, what we see in relatively capitalist countries like the US is the people that are responsible for those policies, they're not free market ideologues, they're not libertarians, they're really just pragmatists who say, oh, this, kind of, this seems to work better, let's do this. Right? Or even off, often it's just the pragmatism of, well, it seems to be working pretty good. Let's not rock the boat. Uh, so that's my take in that essay. I really love your intellectual honesty on that one. That really stood out to me and throughout this book. Well, thank you. We really appreciate you coming on. We really appreciate your time. Uh, where can the people connect with you, Brian? Yes. Yeah, so you can buy the book on Amazon. It's only 12 bucks uh, for the paperback and $9.99 for the ebook. Right, and again, the title is How Evil Are Politicians? with a question mark, uh, essays on demagoguery. I blog for Bet On It on Substack. I'm also on Twitter uh, under Brian underscore Kaplan. And then if you just Google my last name, Kaplan, C-A-P-L-A-N, with that correct spelling, I usually come up as number one, beating out Lizzie Kaplan, the somewhat famous movie star <laughs> with the same last name. Nice. That's awesome. Good for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was really great to meet you. Um, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Brian.